Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, New Yorker staff writer Jelani Cobb characterizes the warnings of the landmark 1968 Kerner Report as strikingly relevant today. In his new book, The Essential Kerner Commission, Cobb distills the commission's analysis of what led to explosive racial justice protests in the mid-60s and recontextualizes it in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. In many ways, he does the same with a new documentary series on President Barack Obama, re-examining the impact of America's first black president in a nation still grappling with its racist history. We'll talk to Cobb after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. New Yorker staff writer, author, and producer Jelani Cobb covers race, culture, history, and politics in his writings and documentary films. And he has two new projects released just in the last 10 days, a reexamination of the 1968 Kerner Commission report, which looked at police violence and the root causes of protests that were erupting across the country back then, and an HBO documentary series on our 44th president titled Obama, in pursuit of a more perfect union. Jelani Kopp, welcome back to Forum. Thank you. Uh, You served as executive producer on this documentary series I just mentioned about the personal and political journey of President Obama. There is a lot that's said, written about Obama. He's also talking about himself um, and writing about his own legacy. But what was the story about America's first Black president that you wanted to tell? So, you know, there was this obvious um, resonance of Obama's life and his presidency, if for no other reason than the fact that he was president. You know, there's a a narrative that needs to be established for the record uh, for anyone who served in that office. But even, um, especially at the outset of his presidency, but especially at the end of his presidency, it was clear that there was this through line of race and what his significance had been Mm. uh, to race in the United States. And so we wanted to understand that and to begin kind of assembling a portrait of how that had played out in the course of his time in office. Uh, And, you know, when people would ask, you know, why is it important to tell this story now? Well, we've only 
become more aware <laughs> of the significance of it. Like uh, sometimes as things retreat into history, we lose track of what their importance is. But the particular nature of Obama, of the presidency, of race in the United States, uh, of American history, et cetera, we could go on. You know, the particularities of those things has made it such that Obama's significance has become more visible, not less, in the intervening years since he left office. Yeah. I, I want to give our listeners a little bit of a sense of the documentary. And uh, this is a little bit of a trailer. It's a preview cut to the second episode in your three-part series. And this one focused on the role of race in the campaign. So let's just give it a listen. I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States of America. Early in the campaign, black people who are feeling somewhat neglected. Is he going to represent us? Is he going to take our issues seriously? People felt he wasn't black enough. McCain's crowds turned uglier. The discussion of race in this campaign has taken a particularly divisive turn. This is not a man who sees America the way that you and I see America. That's a clip from the new HBO documentary series, Obama in Pursuit of a More Perfect Union, a preview to the second episode of the three-part series. My guest, Jelani Cobb, was executive producer of the documentary series. I want to back up a little bit, Jelani Cobb, and ask you, when when did Obama first make an impression on you? Oh, uh, you can call me Jelani, uh, by the way. But... The first impression I had of him was like many people, the 2004 Democratic National Convention speech that he gave. Uh, and you know, I wrote something about it the next day. And I think I said by um, the standards of uh, American oratory, the speech was a B. <laughs> or B plus. <laughs> um, do you take that back or do you? No, no, I maintain that, you know, I'm, and I'm a professor in my regular life, and I don't, I'm very reluctant to change grades unless there's been uh, some sort of calculation error. And I don't think I miscalculated in that evaluation of the speech. Um, but, but, you know, he was outside the particulars of the speech, he was tapping into a particular aspirational vein in American life. And so uh, when he said, you know, there's not a black America or a white America or a Latino America. There's the United States of America. And, you know, that patently was untrue. <laughs> that was absolutely untrue. We yeah. had correlations of people's life outcomes and life opportunities uh, that connect to race and, and continue to. And everyone in that auditorium knew that to some degree or another. But at the same time, there's a deep yearning. When I said that, a kind of dismissive comment about it. There's a deep yearning for that to become true, for the one day when that will be true. And that's what he was speaking to. And I think that was what catapulted him into uh, the stratosphere politically. Yes. And uh, that was, I think, looking at that unfold was when I began to think, oh, okay, this is someone who uh, has to be reckoned with. Yeah, he really presented this aspirational vision of America that we all wanted to believe in. Um, but as you point out, right, we know the different worlds that people live in, whether you're white or non-white. And, and you know, you, you listen to that line with some skepticism. And you also um, document the skepticism 
from some black voters. But in addition, the genuine skepticism of people like Al Sharpton, Michael Eric Dyson, Cornell West in your film. And I have to say, until I saw your film, I, my focus on that in the past has mainly been on how hard all that must have been for Obama, like to balance their demands with the needs to be palatable to a white electorate and so on. And you do address that in the documentary. But what I was struck by was how hard he was for them in many mm -hmm. ways, like what he demanded that they set aside for the achievement of the first black president. Can you talk a little bit about that? Were you trying to show that? Too? Yeah, it was it was an amazing. Yeah, that was one of the, the threads that we were most interested in exploring. Huh. And that was why, you know, we have people who you know, have been critical of him and people who are, you know, looking at, um, you know, things they think he could have done better. And, you know, because he presented this very complicated set of questions, you know, so for one, he encountered skepticism from Black leadership, you know, particularly the Congress Congressional Black Caucus, uh, for a very common and understandable reason. He was an unknown quantity. You know, he had only been in the Senate for a brief time and then had been in the Illinois state legislature. Uh, and so people didn't really know his character. Nobody owed him any favors. He didn't owe them any favors. Uh, there weren't uh, people who could readily say, oh, I go back 10 years with him. Uh, and so that was part of the skepticism. The other part of the skepticism was just plain um, political uh, favor trading. You know, people had long histories with Hillary Clinton, who he was running against in the mm -hmm. presidency. Uh, people had connections with um, Bill Clinton before that. And, you know, when I when, when I wrote my book on it, when I interviewed people, they would talk specifically uh, about the things that had been on the table. That, you know, if Hillary won, we'll be able to do this, that, and the other. And that's just kind of standard politics. Uh, and so that was part of it. The other thing, though, that that made it such a complicated situation was that Obama, by the very nature of who he was and what he represented, made it extremely difficult for people to criticize him, even for good faith criticism. Uh, there was this, as, as soon as it became clear that he stood a credible chance of being elected as the first Black president, uh, there was this dynamic of protectiveness that emerged uh, among African Americans. Uh, and any criticism of, of him was seen as bad faith criticism. Uh, and that included uh, from, you know, the people who, it, whose job it was to really push him on matters, to kind of make him do things that he might not have done otherwise, you know, in, in Congress, uh, you know, in local and municipal leadership and so on. And so it, it really refracted in all of these ways that people's relationships with him uh, were shot through with not just him, not just his policies, but with his significance to history at that moment. Yes, that significance to history. And, and I think you also unpack like what the power of that is in the context of also people asking good faith, to use your word, questions about what he actually achieved. At what point, I think you quote Cornell West saying something like, Obama didn't move in the ways that he could have or, or should have. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, what your, how you would assess what he achieved and what he was capable of achieving. I think that's the thing that really divides his critics. 
and so there are people who felt that he should have moved more aggressively. And, and one of the first areas you saw this um, was in the stimulus where the Congressional Black Caucus wanted the stimulus to target the zip codes that had been most heavily impacted by the Great Recession and the housing crisis. Uh, that would have disproportionately ended up supporting uh, communities of color, uh, which bore the brunt uh, of that. And it was a non-racial approach, but it had racial implications. That was not the path that the administration took. Uh, although I think that there was a credible argument that they should have taken uh, that direction. Uh, but then it becomes another question of you know, what exactly was possible because on the other side of it, uh, when there's a belief that Obama um, was too cautious, it has to take into account that uh, after the Affordable Care Act, it was virtually impossible for them to get anything done legislatively. Uh, and after they lost the majority in the House uh, two years into his presidency, uh, it became even more difficult in, with the intransigent Congress and uh, you know, being called a liar in the course of a joint address to Congress you know, overtly, uh, being denied uh, the presidential prerogative, presidential responsibility of appointing someone to the Supreme Court. Uh, there were routine aspects of the presidency that he was not able to execute uh, because the Republican Party decided, in effect, to make him a non-president to the extent of their power. Uh, and so I don't think that there's a one there's one simple answer on that. It almost has to be in a case-by-case -case thing. You have to look at each individual situation uh, to see what could have been done and what wasn't done. We're talking with Jelani Cobb, executive producer of the new HBO documentary series, Obama in Pursuit of a More Perfect Union. Also, New Yorker staff writer and professor of journalism at Columbia University. I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation and tell us what, how you assess Obama's presidency and the role that you think race played in it. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Jelani Cobb, staff writer for The New Yorker, professor of journalism at Columbia University. He's also editor of the Essential Kerner Commission Report, which came out last week, and executive producer of the new HBO documentary series, Obama in Pursuit of a More Perfect Union, that came out this week. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can always call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Share your thoughts, reactions, questions, through email, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at kqedforum. 
Jelani, just before the break, you were talking about, you know, the recalcitrance, the obstructionism of the Republican Party and and the unprecedented, or at least in my memory, disrespect for the office of the presidency with the you lie and, you know, the Supreme Court pick really essentially being stolen from him in the eyes of a lot of Democrats and so on. One of the points you make, though, is that those moments were less about fighting him on policies and more about fighting who he was or attacking who he was. Could you explain that a little bit? So I think that um, there was this idea that a Black president would be immune to the kind of daily indignities that people have to deal with, you know, because of matters of race in this country. Uh, And that was part of what the exuberance and the euphoria uh, that surrounded his election was about. Um, But, you know, and time after time, incident after incident, we saw a real kind of lessening of the protocols of the presidency. Now, I'd mentioned the two kind of overt instances of it. The obvious other additional one is the emergence of the Tea Party, where people uh, under the banner of disagreeing with the Affordable Care Act and disagreeing with uh, policy around the recession began you know, showing up at rallies with images of Obama made to look like an ape. Um, mm. And you know all the sorts of overt racial uh, and stereotypical and stereotypes and caricatures uh, that were being trafficked in, you know, John Lewis, you know, famously being called by racial epithets uh, as he was entering capital, entering the U.S. Capitol uh, by Tea Party crowds. Uh, Barney Frank being uh, referred to by uh, uh, homophobic epithets as he entered uh, the grounds of the Capitol and those kinds of things that were not permissible, but for the Obama era, you know, the fact that there was this person in office. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think that there was a pretty significant correlation between Obama and the reemergence of those kinds of uh, overtly political, overtly racist uh, political displays that have, we should note, have not subsided, (laughs) that have only continued in the aftermath. Yes. Well, let me go to some of some of our listeners, and let me go to caller Mark in Sonoma. Hi, Mark. Hi, thank you very much. I'll make this as brief as possible. First, I want to say I'm an admirer, a great admirer of Mr. Cobb and his work, so thank you for having him here today. I'm a 64-year-old white man, for what it's worth, and as far as I'm concerned, Barack Obama is one of the finest human beings that's been president in my lifetime, along with Jimmy Carter. Not necessarily the most effective presidents, but the finest human beings. What I want to say is this. Um, The conventional wisdom was that President Obama uh, wasn't more aggressive in going after his detractors because he didn't want to seem like a quote-unquote angry black man. But I really wish early in his term, first term, when he had a 70 percent approval rating, he had done just that. And if you could just give me one more moment, I want to give a perfect example. There was a bipartisan group of 10 senators that were negotiating on the Affordable Care Act. And Charles Grassley, Republican senator from Indiana, who is just a despicable human being, 
at the same time he was supposedly negotiating in good faith on this committee, he was making a public a public appearances and talking about death panels and Obama should have gone after him. He should have campaigned against him. This is just not acceptable. So hmm. thank Mark, you. I will take my res- Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, well, great. You will take your response from Jelani and I will yeah. too. Uh, Jelani, what is your reaction to what Mark is saying here? You, you know, um, that I think it, it would have been better if that dynamic were exclusive to the Affordable Care Act. But that what you described is really a theme in the course of his presidency. And so if you're talking about just kind of political, you know, um, grandstanding, you might be willing to accept someone saying one thing in public and something else behind closed doors, uh, because that's politics. You know, presumably, if this person's operating in good faith with their negotiations, the things that they're saying in public are giving them room to come down somewhere in the middle and private. But in, in fact, they were dealing in good faith with the public, <laughs> dealing in bad faith with the people they were negotiating with in the room. Uh, and so there was no compromise to be had. But we could see the same thing you know, later on in immigration policy. Uh, we could see the same thing in uh, environment and climate change legislation. Uh, we could see the same thing. We kind of go down the line and see time and time again uh, there was this pretense of good faith engagement, uh, but nothing that was delivered on the other side of it. Or the budget negotiations, time and time again, we saw that. Uh, and that's, of course, one of the things that people have been alarmed or concerned about in the deals, the kind of uh, uh, developing debate around the infrastructure bill about whether or not the Republicans were acting in good faith at all. Uh, and so that was a ghost of the Obama era that, that was really animating that conversation. Let me go next to David in Kansas. Hi, David. Hello. Uh, well, my comment and and question is exactly related to that. Um, I I love Obama. I, I love. I'm a Democrat. I think the big difference between Obama and Biden is Obama had the the old uh, saying: uh, "They go high, we go. They go low, we go high." Well, yeah, and at the same time, they eat your lunch. So uh, look at everything that uh, that he just said and Merrick Garland, you know, all heard, the different yeah. instances David, where thanks. Uh, Obama just got taken to lunch. Jelani, I've, I've heard that assessment and concern before, and you're welcome to comment on that as well. I do want to ask you, though, I, I assume that the former president would have been willing to sit down and be interviewed for your documentary. And I'm curious if you had considered asking him to do that or had asked him, or if you specifically decided not to have him there to reflect on his eight years or even before. Well, there have been conversations. And of course I should say that this is all like uh, under the aegis of um, Peter Kuhnhardt, who was the director. Right. Um, and the wonderful team at Coonhart Films. But um, there had been conversations during his presidency about his participation. And um, unfortunately, by the time we were ready to shoot, we were ready to actually kick it off, 
uh, we were precluded by other commitments he had. So oh, okay. um, yes, there was a possibility. But in, in another way, it worked out because he did very graciously give um, you know, all the people around him his blessings uh, to talk to us candidly. Uh, and so, you know, we have, you know, a huge array of people from uh, his inner circle who were able to talk to and, you know, they're very upfront about what they're thinking and what's happening at particular moments and, um, and how things are unfolding. And we're looking at Obama in real time, you know, in the footage of what's happening there. So it, it, it I think it made it possible to have a different kind of interesting conversation. Yeah. Looking at him and talking to him and hearing what he had to say in the moments that he was experiencing them was so eye-opening. There's the moment at the very beginning of episode two of your three-part series where Obama is speaking in 2007, I think in response to a question about what he he would hope to achieve if he were elected president. And I, and I want to play that now. I hope that at the end of an Obama administration, people will look back and say, we changed our politics so that people could take pride in their government again and could feel that the government was working for the people and not just for the few. That at the end of an Obama administration, this country is a little more fair and a little more just, that our economy is a little more balanced and that people have a, a slightly better chance of achieving the American dream. And if we set this country on the right trajectory now, then we won't have solved every problem, but we will have laid the foundation for future generations to continue what's been this great experiment in democracy. It was so incredible hearing him say that in 2007 and knowing what we know now about what happened at the end of the Obama administration. We got the election right. of President Trump, and it feels like what he just described were like literally the opposite. Like trust in government is low. Democracy feels more fragile than ever. And and I, I, I'm wondering what you make of that. You know, I think that it's the, the analogy that people have made, um, at least historians and people who are kind of um, historically cognizant has been, you know, to reconstruction and what followed reconstruction. And so, you know, reconstruction is the 12-year period that followed uh, the end of the Civil War, um, you know, defined by, you know, the Union military presence in the South. And uh, the election of, you know, 600, actually more than 600 uh, African-Americans, some of whom were former slaves, to elected office uh, and throughout the South. And one of the things that happened was the creation of public education infrastructure. Uh, it was these uh, interracial reconstruction era governments that created public education in the South. Hmm. And when in the name of white supremacy, the so-called redemption governments rose up and uh, violently removed people from office, in, including you know, Wilmington, North Carolina, where there was a coup d'etat uh, in the United States. But uh, when those things happened along with it, went that support for public education in the South. So it was almost the idea that people would rather give up the tangible benefit that they were receiving if it came from a Black benefactor. Uh, they would rather go without. Yeah. And so that was part of how we could see a society in which healthcare costs were 
decimating people, were uh, driving people to bankruptcy, where people's uh, lives literally uh, they were dying before they had to, you know, because of lack of access to healthcare. And it was politically palatable for people to stand up and demand uh, that the, the the feeble, fragmentary beginning of healthcare policy, healthcare coverage in this country, the Affordable Care Act, to demand that that be reversed. Uh, and so I think that that's exactly the dynamic that we were talking about. But at the same time, there are some things that are significant. You know, the fact that the Affordable Care Act got done, uh, the fact that there were the negotiations for Black farmers who had been discriminated against, the settlements uh, that they had been discriminated against uh, for decades, and, and that was important. And the kind of diplomacy, the return to diplomacy after the eight truculent years uh, of the uh, Bush administration in which diplomacy had been derided and uh, really uh, had become enfeebled. Uh, and so there were things I think were significant uh, in that regard, but uh, you have to to look at them as net results <laughs> as hmm. opposed to simply whole results. That's interesting you put it that way. The, the last chapter of your three-part series, at least it begins really thinking about the backlash to the historic step forward uh, in terms of racial progress, potentially with the election of the first black president and, and Obama, you know, winning actually twice, um, <laughs> he was reelected mm -hmm. as well. Um, but at the same time, why was it important for you to include a line like Al Sharpton's that says we were naive to think that there wouldn't be a backlash? Because quite frankly, that's, that's, really the kind of experience, the voice of experience speaking. Um, and and honestly, it's something we're reluctant to think about, but it is an important part of his legacy. Uh, at the same time, not all of us were so naive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were people in 2007, and two, especially in 2008, as he started to look like a viable candidate, uh, who began saying, you know, if we look at history as any guide, uh, if he succeeds, there'll be a huge backlash. And uh, we uh, allude to it, you know, about his safety and, you know, those things. But that was a very prominent concern. You know, lots of African-Americans wondered if he would live through his presidency, quite frankly. Yes. Uh, and, and so that idea of, like, what the backlash to him might look like was not entirely absent from people's thinking, but it seemed like the worst thing to possibly talk about, you know, openly in the context of this amazing path-breaking moment we were in. Yeah. When you say if history is any guide, it's reminding me of the fact that you just edited the Kerner Commission report in a new book mm -hmm. called The Essential Kerner Commission. And there really are parallels, I feel like, to the backlash and also you know, to this landmark commission's recommendations on addressing the issues that were plaguing predominantly black cities, how it was met, or in many ways, how we retreated from all the important recommendations that this Kerner Commission report made. Could you first just remind us of the commission's purpose, just to rem help our listeners remember? So in 1967, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson announced uh, the creation of a commission uh, that would be chaired by Illinois Governor Otto Kerner, 
to look into what they were calling civil disturbances in the kind of arid bureaucratic language um, of the era. Um, other people had called riots or uprisings or rebellions. Uh, and uh, this <clears throat> commission had three charges from Lyndon Johnson to find out what happened, uh, to find out why it had happened, and to ascertain what could be done to prevent it from happening again. And uh, in 1968, they delivered uh, a massive, roughly 900 page report that detailed uh, the responses to those three questions that the president had uh, posed to them. And what was striking to you about their recommendations? What were the ones that just seem so relevant to today? Well, you know, Kerner, the Kerner Commission was given like what we know about government reports, which tend to be dry and bureaucratic and, you know, hedge in their language. And um, one of the reasons why Kerner is so important is that it was the opposite. You know, it says uh, overtly, if people know anything about the Kerner Commission report, they tend to know these two phrases uh, that were in the synopsis. And, you know, one was that we are moving toward two societies, uh, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Uh, and the other was that the, um, the ghetto, as they would have used the language they used then, is that the ghetto is a creation of the white majority. He said white people tend to ignore this, but Negroes cannot forget it. Uh, and uh, those kinds of those two points kind of summarize where the what the bigger report talks about, which is a very far-reaching indictment of American racism in society and in public policy, uh, and saying that the riots were simply a symptom of this bigger uh, rot that had been driven by racism. And it's a kind of amazing document to see. And, you know, saying that uh, policing and unemployment and housing and all those things together have to be addressed. Yes. And a document, as you say, that uh, came out in 1968. We'll have more with Jelani Cobb after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Jelani Cobb, editor of The Essential Kerner Commission Report, a new book that edits, distills, and crystallizes the key points of the Kerner Commission Report that's still relevant today. An executive producer of the new HBO documentary series, Obama, in pursuit of a more perfect union, Jelani Cobb, a staff writer for The New Yorker and a professor of journalism at Columbia University. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions or comments, or maybe you want to reflect on Obama's presidency and what role you think race plays in it. Curious to also hear from you listeners how you feel like America's attitudes about race have changed or not under President Obama or about the the trajectory that we're on with regard to racial justice. 866-733-6786, the number 866-733-6786. Email us forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. What you were talking about before the break, about how this 1968 Kerner Commission report really implicates white supremacy and and also focuses on things like uh, the issues of inadequate housing or good-paying jobs or or things that were really at the root of protests in cities across the U.S. at the time, and the police interaction, police violence, was really just the tip of the spear, the spark that would, would set these things off. That's all incredibly, as you say, relevant to today. You also write that... Kerner establishes that it's possible for us, and this is a quote, to be cognizant of history and repeat it anyway. Uh, and you say, and never was that more apparent than in the spring of 2020, when the half-century-old report reemerged as part of the stilted national dialogue on race, policing, and equality, and of course, inequality. And of course, you're referring here to the murder of George Floyd. So <clears throat> it sounds like you're saying that our problems are really not for a lack of knowing what to do about them, but a lack of willingness to do anything about them. Yeah, and so I think when Santayana you know, said, those of us who fail to remember history are doomed to repeat it, he was being optimistic, <laughs> um, unduly <laughs> optimistic, um, because there's the possibility of us understanding history and repeating it anyway, which is what I was saying about Kerner. Yeah. Uh, that report detailed so much of what was being said, what was being thought, you know, what was being heard in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. And if we already have the knowledge, then the problem persisting must be an indictment of the absence of will. Uh, and that you know, we have seen and not just in Kerner, I should say, in, in other uh, less uh, ambitious and more constrained reports that um, policing is, in itself is not simply the problem, that it will never likely reach a point where we have uh, disparities in housing, disparities in healthcare, disparities in employment, uh, and in wages uh, among those who are employed, uh, disparities in education and the quality of education that people have access to, but yet we have pristine policing. Like we won't have that situation that we'll have to address all of our systemic inequalities if we hope to have any chance of achieving a more democratic and more stable society. Uh, and so that was one of the, the kind of crucial takeaways I thought was really apparent uh, in, in uh, going revisiting the Carter Commission report. Well, let me go to caller Todd in San Francisco. Hi, Todd. Join us. Good morning. Um, uh, thanks for taking my call, and uh, thank you for uh, your guest. This is incredibly uh, interesting. Um, my, um, I guess more or less my comment is, uh, as far as the Obama presidency, it's just it's, I think a lot of upper middle class liberals just thought that uh, they were just doing the right, you know, a, they were doing the right thing by voting for a uh, a black Democratic president, and it made them feel good. But other than that, they just more or less end up being part of the problem as well because they kind of don't seem to have any follow through on um, on 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 kind of like the topics you were talking about before, like 
as, as far as let's say uh, to, uh, like the like the healthcare uh, that mm-hmm. he put through or whatever, or just it's just like it's. You mean the kinds of like structural like a, investments that yeah, that may it's, ask it's of a really them. soft. Yes, it's a really soft activism, and it's just like there's there's just seems to be no backbone in. I don't know how else to say it, upper white uh, middle class liberalism. And that's just kind of a another problem in the Democratic Party. Uh, Todd, thanks. Do you have a reaction to that, Jelani? And do you see parallels of that even with the way we handled the Kerner Commission report? I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that's it. And, you know, you know, in terms of Obama, like um, I think there was a particular appeal that he had that wasn't simply like let's go out and vote for the black guy and feel good about ourselves because um you know no other black candidate had made it that far historically black candidates uh if you were just looking for a feel-good vote that did not really apply to them you know um but he uh and notably got a higher percentage of the white vote um in than john Kerry had in 2004 or Al Gore in 2000. Uh, and so there were some particulars about Barack Obama, but I also think that there's a kind of intransigence uh, where you know the will of people is not necessarily translated into policy across a lot of fronts. Uh, if we were looking at gun control policy, that would be one of the clearest ones, you know, where the public favors basic things like background checks and they, they have almost no chance of happening. Uh, and so I don't know that, I think that some of what we're talking about may be part, symptomatic of a bigger and no less dangerous uh, set of dynamics in American uh, society in which the will of the public does not translate into what actually happens legislatively. Yes. And and you write in your um, your book, The Essential Kerner Commission Report, that you have published this book with a particular hope in mind that its renewed availability might result in its observations being more thoroughly heated. But I have to say, especially when the Kerner Report, you know, famously warned that our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, and that feeling very much like where we are, that that I'm losing a little hope that understanding that progress tends to be like this cyclical thing or like a spiraling thing. Um, I'm starting to lose hope that the spiral has an upward trajectory. (laughs) Where, where do you fall on that? You know, I think that uh, on the question of hope and its applicability, you know, I fall back on, my training, which is as a historian, you know, and teach African American history. And whenever people bring up that question, I say that people had no real ability. I mean, they had no reasonable sense of optimism in the the despair of slavery, or, or no real rationale for optimism in the despair of slavery other than the recalcitrant will to retain hope uh, and to impose that hope upon desolate circumstances until those circumstances conform to what they were hoped for. And that's how emancipation came. Uh, And that's how every single iota of freedom that we have in the society, particularly for people who were excluded from the original compacts 
that's how we have attained it. You know, it's been a kind of uh, hope against hope. And so when people ask me about that, I would say that um, I possess the hope of a boxer going into the late rounds. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> saying that, you know, on the one hand, you are quite certain that you're going to be punched in the face multiple times. Um, but you also know that there's more of the fight behind you than there is in front of you. Uh, and that you've stood up as long as you have. Uh, and that if what has gotten you that far, if you have more of that, it can get you all the way um, to the final bell, that you have a chance of winning. And so I think that that's it. And, and that's the the way that I've looked at it and and the lens that I brought to uh, you know, both of those projects, really, the, the uh, Kerner Commission report and the Obama documentary. Yes, it, it is the lens that you you brought to it. And one of the other things that you mention in the Obama documentary a lot is the power also of the symbolic nature of Obama or of having the first black president. So for those tempted to say that his rise was symbolic of racial progress, but not necessarily real achievement, what is your response to that? Uh, I think that ta Coates makes a really uh, trenchant point when he says that people underestimate the value of symbols, you know, and, and moreover, you know, a huge portion of the presidency in any context is symbolic. Uh, I think that was why people were so disturbed, certainly people on the left were so disturbed by uh, the Trump presidency, because not only was he, uh, in terms of policy, uh, you know, terrible, but what he represented symbolically, uh, what he embodied, you know, as the representation of the country was so starkly at odds with what we understand in a democratic society to be useful, helpful. Uh, and so uh, Obama being symbolic would be consistent with the power of that office. Uh, but I don't think that he was simply symbolic. You know, I think that there are the points that we talked about a little yes. bit earlier, yes. um, you know, that are substantial, but we we just have to understand them in the context of uh, what were the countervailing um, efforts or the, the, the headwinds that they were trying to navigate at the same time. Yeah. I also really like I, when Sherilyn Eiffel is speaking in the documentary, talking about progress and that, you know, progress isn't this like relentless thing, uh, even if it is occurring and that there are moments that crystallize how fragile progress really is, but that it mm -hmm. is still in fact happening. Um, I'll read a few comments here. Rob writes, I supported and voted for President Obama, but I fault him for one thing that was entirely within his power. I don't think that he ha told a coherent story to the American people about who the forces were that were opposing his leadership and policies. Another listener tweets, it seemed to me that Obama saw his role as being the black president of America instead of the president of black America. The two instances where he publicly addressed structural racism, Henry Louis Gates and Trayvon Mont Martin, provoked harsh reactions. We're talking with Jelani Cobb, executive producer of a new HBO documentary series, Obama in Pursuit of a More Perfect Union, editor of the Essential Kerner Commission Report, and also staff writer for The New Yorker. And you, our listeners, can join us at 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Richard in San Rafael. Hi, Richard. Thanks for waiting. Yeah, thank you. Um... I, you know, this is this business about the Kerner Commission report 
and and its findings, I think, is the most important, possibly with the exception of climate change, the most important discussion for the country to have. And the and the report really needs to be dusted off. I was a I was a reporter with the Associated Press in 1968 in Kansas City when the riots took place after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And, uh, you know, after, after when, the, when the commission report came out, that to me was a great sign of hope that the country was waking up to the reality of the two separate societies. The problem historically was, as I see it, was that – in 1970, of course, Nixon came along with the Southern strategy, which was designed to deny that what the Kerner Commission report was citing was the problem, that there is no problem except for the fact that African-Americans can't control themselves. And we've been stuck in that for the next ever since then, for the following 40 years. And we're still stuck in the Civil War. So there's this unwillingness on the part of us as a nation to acknowledge the sins of racism. And, you know, what is needed, but it's not going to happen as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, is the kind of truth and reconciliation process that took place in South Africa. And someone I know from South Africa that I talked with about this said the reason it won't work here is because in South Africa, there was an overwhelming black majority that was a power structure in and of itself. Well, Richard, yeah. We're just running a little short on time, and I do want to give Jelani Kopp a chance to respond because, Jelani, you do address some of the things that Richard raises yeah, and, and you know that's really uh, I talk about that in the introduction, um, and the the fact that uh, Richard Nixon was able to profit on that politically really set the tenor uh, for decades of American politics, as you've seen, and then of course resurrected in the Trump campaign in 2016, yes. uh, the idea of law and order, um, and even kind of manufacturing a, a crime crisis, you know, when none existed at the time, and so. Uh, you know, which was also one of the things that facilitated Richard Nixon being able to to do to do that, uh, and so in the Southern strategy and you know, the utilization of racism, like all those things, have been the legacy of paradoxically the moment that the Kerner Commission report was released. You know, those were the two dynamics that were uh, de- defining American politics, and we still see them present now. Uh, and so I think that's a really astute ab- observation. Well, thank you, Richard. And uh, you've got a comment of appreciation from Lister Lois, who writes, Mr. Cobb, I appreciate all your work. Always look forward to hearing from you. Glad about the focus on the Kerner Report. This listener writes, President Obama had the weight of America's history of racism to carry throughout his time in office, and he was under a microscope. His election woke up white supremacy in this country and birthed McConnell's obstructionism. If Obama had said or done even one of the corrupt actions of Trump, he would have been gone. Any measurement of his accomplishments must realize the role of racism in it. When you were re-examining his legacy, putting this film together, Jelani Cobb, were you 
struck or surprised or learned new things about the role of race in some of the Republican recalcitrants that you observed? Or was it something that was clear to you as they were happening in the moment? I think it was clear as it was happening in the moment, but what happens in looking at them in retrospect is that you see them cumulatively. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I didn't really see. And so when you're going through the footage and you're seeing really the, the, constitutional or the uh, the elements of our current volatile political situation coming together you know the constituent elements piece by piece and you know it's like seeing puzzle pieces you know um and you know there's the tea party there's the kind of volatility there's um the republican intransigence there's the growing white nationalist threat there's you know dylan roof uh, and the murders in South Carolina and you know, all these things that are coming together until we reach this moment that almost makes January 6th seem predictable. Uh, and so I think it's the cumulative effect of all of it that had the most impact uh, on me in terms of, you know, looking at all of this footage. And the lessons of his presidency that you think need to be heated, just like the Kerner Commission report lessons. Exactly. Exactly. Jelani Cobb, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate having you on today. Thank you. You know, I have a little bit of coastal envy because, you know, pre-COVID, I would usually get out to the Bay Area two or three times a year, but I haven't been out there in like almost two years now. So uh, I miss you guys. (laughs) Yeah, well, hopefully next time the interview will be in person, Jelani Cobb. It would be great. Jelani Cobb, the Essential Kerner Commission and Obama in Pursuit of a More Perfect Union, his latest projects. Check those out. Thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.